0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at RenewSanDiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon.
1: Today's reading is from Acts, book one, chapters one through 14, verses one through 14. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote all about what Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection.
0: Let's pray together. Gracious God, in the silence of this place, perhaps the most silent and still we've been all week. And still there's the voices that we hear coming from outside telling us to Be more, do more, strive more, or that inner critic that comes from within saying, You're a failure, you've messed up, you're hopeless. The whole situation is going downward. We come with voices inside that are overconfident or have fallen asleep through endless entertainment. Voices that believe our successes are the most important thing about us and so we continually strive to achieve more and more. Or voices of loneliness or isolation or anger. However we find ourselves right now, help us to see that you know us. You see us. And your response to the mess we've made of this world is not to give up on us but to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love right now. And so we pray as we read and apply these scriptures that you would open our eyes to your grace, our minds to your truth, our hearts to your love, and our world to your renewal. Bless us and send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, friends... Had a heck of a birthday week, I'll tell you that. You know, on one hand, how does Enneagram 7s celebrate their birthday? And the answer is by doing all the things we can. And so, birthday week began with a flight to San Francisco, a 24 hour flight where I was visiting with some of my closest friends up there, a guys' group that's been gathering together for 10 years, and uh, climbed a mountain with a friend and then went out to this Italian dinner at one of the fanciest restaurants in town, and one of our buddies, Hal, is a high-end wine distributor out of Napa. So Hal, in my mind, is always famous for saying, okay, gentlemen, one of these bottles of wine is $200, and one of them is $2,000, and I'm not going to tell you which one's which. Just enjoy the wine and tell me what you like. And there's seconds on both of them if you guys want. I mean, this is, these are the kind of dinners that these guys put together. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal time. And it was then that I started getting news updates on my phone about the tragedy that was unfolding as these children and these teachers were losing their lives in Texas. And um, I remember taking the flight home the next day. It was a beautiful day. And I was thinking, "I'm, I'm coming from this amazing time with my close friends. I'm heading home. We have community group in our home tonight. I love hosting community group and seeing all of you in our home. Why does my heart just feel so sad? And I simply realized, oh, this is what grief feels like. This is what grief and mourning feel like. And I think we're conditioned, depending on our temperament and our personality, some of us gravitate toward grief, some of us gravitate away from it. I think our culture gravitates away from it. We try to just fill ourselves with more stuff and do more stuff and ramp things up. But it gets a hold of you. And like we've said before, you either have to do, you have to do something healthy with your grief or else you're going to do something unhealthy with it. And I sat down and uh, read this section in a book that my friend Mark Skandret had written on, The Way of Lament. And he said, why don't you write out a lament? And all I got to in my journal was the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Which is a question that, you know, I think you start asking around four years old when you're paying attention, five years old. And uh, then you can go through life and have a master's degree or become a theologian and a scholar and a pastor and whatever else. And you still ask the question. You live long enough in this life and you realize that things are not the way they're supposed to be and you don't have to live that long. So I had a sermon on the ascension, which is today's feast day prepared. And then I just got overwhelmed by this question and i talked to many of you this week and prayed with you and cried with you and I realized you're asking the same question. So let's start there and it will drop us off on the doorstep of the scripture we just heard. But I think we have to first zoom out and ask why do bad things happen to good people? And wanna know the answer? Nobody knows, nobody knows. There was uh, a writer of one of the books in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes who most scholars and theologians who've studied this believe was royalty, who had, had at that time the equivalent of Elon Musk status in terms of being able to enjoy any privilege, to travel anywhere that they were able to travel to, to have any sort of experience he wanted to, and he kind of catalogs and chronicles it, he says, I've tried wine, and women, and song, and travel, and building palaces, and conquering cities, and it just, it's meaningless. So why does the sun shine on the evil? I don't know. It's the age-old question. Here's what we know. We know that it's not karma, okay? I'm not not a scholar in terms of, like, karmic uh, um, cosmology, but I do know it's not if you do good things, good things happen to you, because we just saw bad things happen to kids that had done nothing. And conversely, you see good things happen to people that are really doing terrible things in this world. There's some warlord right now driving around in a Lamborghini having a blast. So the the writer of Ecclesiastes goes, it's just meaningless, it's all vanity. (laughs) All you can do, he says, is keep the commandments and honor God because one day God will sort all things out. And that's as far as he gets it. Scroll out a little further and scripture actually paints a picture of the context in which we find ourselves. And the banner of it could be a world that is beautiful and broken. We live in a world that starts not with original sin, but with original blessing. A world in which the first human beings were naked and not ashamed and had everything they needed, and they were at right relationship with God, with themselves, with each other, and with the created world. This is part of what the Hebrew word shalom means, which is often translated as peace. It means nothing less than the absence of conflict, but it means so much more. It means human flourishing. And that is what you and I were built for. But the story doesn't go on for too long. In fact, just two chapters until you get to Genesis 3. And there's this rebellion that takes place between humanity and the divine. And at the root of the rebellion is a lie where the serpent says... You can't trust God. God's not going to look out for you. God is not going to take care of you. You need to take matters into your own hands. And that begins the nuclear fallout of generation after generation of showing the breakdown of all of those relationships. The breakdown of the relationship with the human and the divine where when they used to walk in the cool of the garden with Yahweh, now God is saying, where are you? And they're hiding from God. Do you think God didn't know where they were? Does an omniscient being need to ask, where are you? No. God's been asking ever since, where are you? Not because God doesn't know where you are, but because God wants you to know that God's looking for you. Nuclear fallout of relationship with ourselves. They used to be naked and not ashamed, comfortable in their own skin. You could be known and loved to hiding, to covering up. This is when the first clothing was invented, to hide, and we've been hiding ever since from each other. Posturing, pretending. I have a friend who's a therapist, I say, when you sit down with a client, if you don't know anything else about them except for their intake form, what's in this one assumption you make of every human being you meet? He says, everybody wants to be known and wants to be loved, everybody. And yet within all of us, there's a fear that if you were really known, you'd be rejected. And so we hide. The breakdown of relationship between each other where it moves from hiding to blame shifting, right? God says, what happened? And Adam says, I didn't do it. The woman made me do it. And the woman says, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent's fault. And blame shifting begins, but it's only another couple chapters before that blame shifting turns into scapegoating. The scapegoating turns into murder as Cain murders his brother Abel. As the first city in human written civilization is founded on violence. And we've been building cities on violence ever since. We've been building empires on violence ever since. And so that gives you an overview of beautiful and broken. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because we live in this world that was created to reflect the glory of God. But through our own rebellion, we've gone off the railroad tracks. And the train is still moving through the wilderness. Tearing up everything around it. And so you see good people do bad things that just baffle you. So you say, I thought they were different than that. And they go, yeah, I am beautiful, but I'm also broken. You see not-so-good people surprise you with acts of bravery or kindness or generosity. And they say, yeah, I may be broken, but I still have the stamp of the image of God. That's why there's no such thing as a truly good or truly bad person. Because the line between good and evil does not go between countries or civilizations or empires. It goes right down the human heart. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because we live in a beautiful and broken world. I'll also tell you this, though. On one hand, there's no, no answer for that question at this point that I'm aware of. I also know that there's no answer to that question, why do bad things happen to good people, that would satisfy you anyways. I mean, the brain's looking for a rational answer, but the heart is really what's longing. I've sat with many people in grief, and loss, especially unexpected loss. And they always, almost always ask, Pastor, why did this happen? And as, an, as a young pastor early on, I, I foolishly tried to answer that question. But there is no answer, and you're not actually looking for the answer to that question. What you really want to know is, what is God doing about it? Is there any meaning to this? Is there any sense to this? And Leslie Newbegin, talks about Jesus Christ's life, death and resurrection as the great clue of what God is doing about the tragedy in our world. He says, "The Bible doesn't answer the question why does bad things happen to good people, but the cross is the great clue of what God is doing about it." And here's what he means. Whatever God is doing about the brokenness and tragedy in this world, it cannot be that God doesn't know or God doesn't care. Because God sees and cares enough to come down into the story in Jesus Christ. To take the pain and the brokenness of this world upon himself. Now, you don't have to be too familiar with the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to realize that he suffered for the brokenness of this world. But it actually gets even deeper than that. Because his suffering didn't begin on Good Friday morning when he was condemned and sent to death, though that was suffering. A suffering so bad that we had to invent a new word to describe it. Excruciating pain, Excruc to come out of the cross. It's the kind of pain you can only get when you're crucified. God came into the world and allowed the pain of this world to affect him so deeply, we had to invent a new word to describe it. A God who knows what it's like to bleed. God the Father, watching God the Son on the cross give his life. A God who knows what it's like to lose a child. A God who's taken on the pain and the sin and the brokenness of this world by entering into it. Not just watching from afar as a spectator, but feeling it. Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A God who knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. A God who knows what it's like to go through the pain and the confusion that you're going through. And these families are going through in Texas, in Buffalo, in Orange County. But I'd make the case, as you read through, that Jesus' suffering didn't begin on the cross. On one hand, you can make the case it began when he was born in a manger. Where for the first time ever, the omnipotent, omniscient king of the entire cosmos knows what it's like to be cold and hungry. And as he goes through his life, he knows what it's like to be let down by his friends. He knows what it's like to have his friend Lazarus die. And to weep at the tomb, even though he knows he will raise him from the dead. See, with Jesus, he doesn't fast forward the part of the movie that's sad to get to the great part. Even though he knows the resurrection is coming, he sits in the sorrow. He feels it with you. But if you scroll a little earlier, even than his birth... There's a part that is almost never read around Christmas time. Because imagine how this would kill the mood. This is just embedded in the wise men, the Magi's story, okay? Now, after the Magi, the wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up and take Jesus and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So you have Herod, kind of the puppet king of the region, has heard from the wise men that there's a new king of the Jews coming up and he's threatened and he's terrified and what does he do? Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I've called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. The story of Jesus begins in a city that has just lost all of its children to violence. And it's into this world that God comes intimately. There is no other image of God caring about this world like a God who would become one with it and enter into it and take it all upon himself. This is what we read about. When we read about his death on the cross. It's not merely a good man who was killed painfully. It is the son of God, the image of the invisible creator being affected by our violence all the way down. Drinking it to the bottom of the cup and saying, do your worst. And three days later in the resurrection, recycling all of that violence into new life. God enters in. Which then brings us to the ascension. This passage we just read comes 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. And over the past several weeks we've been studying the accounts of Jesus' eyewitness encounters with his friends after he's been risen from the dead and it took many of them because like you and me, they're slow to believe. Quick to doubt. For many good reasons. And it's like he wants to overly convince you that the pain of this world is real and so is his power over it. And he will have the last word. I think this might be what they're getting at. In verse 6, when they say, they see him, and they say, is this the time when you're going to restore Israel? Like, we're seeing, this is great. We're seeing your power. We're seeing your presence. We're looking at the scoreboard, and you've defeated death. Why don't you take all of that power and restore Israel? Why don't you crush the Roman Empire that's holding us right now in oppression? Why don't you redeem everything? And ironically, Jesus is about to restore everything, at least begin the restoration of everything. This is the beginning of the season that theologians call the already and the not yet of the coming kingdom of God. That in his life, death and resurrection, look at his life, what does he say? Let the little children come to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You could trust me, you could build your life on me. Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's talking about rest. He's talking about coming to him. He's talking about from the youngest to the oldest, from every ethnicity and culture, streaming to him and then displaying his power on the cross and in the empty tomb. And all of that gets loaded into the ascension. The ascension is where that all connects. My son, when he was young, we bought him the, we saved, actually no, um, grandma got him, so honor to grandma, got him this Lego set, one of the expensive train Lego sets with a battery pack, and it was really cool. And we took all day and we put the thing together, and there was a battery train and a motor train, and it had a connection that goes to it. And for some reason, the connection didn't work, and so the train didn't work. So we had to send it into Lego and Lego, you know, over there in Europe had to grab the piece and send it out to us. And then we made the connection and it worked. The ascension is the connector between the power of the resurrection and the renewal of this world. Here's what I mean by that. There's a place in John 20 when Jesus is resurrected and he's appearing to Mary in the garden. She holds on to him and she won't let him go. And he says, "Mary, you've got to let me go because I have not yet ascended to my Father and your Father, my God and your God." In other words, when you, if you hold on to me, you will only have me right here, right now. But if you let me go, I ascend to the Father, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will be in all places, in all things, at all times. You see the detonation of that, but the explosion yields the result of peace, of joy, of renewal. As one theologian said, Christ plays in 10,000 places. As another theologian said, you cannot loose an arrow through the sky without piercing Christ 10,000 times. In other words, he's everywhere. He's closer than the air you breathe. And the ascension unlocks all of that. What does it mean that he sends the Holy Spirit? One of the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of our brokenness so when we get that, the blind spots going, it says, uh-uh, no, actually, you were built for more than this. When we begin to become cynical and complacent about this world and its tragedy, it says, uh-uh, there's still hope, so don't give up because God's not given up yet. I mean, I'll tell you a story. At the beginning of the Ukraine invasion by Russia, about four days in, Levi, my 12-year-old, would ask me for updates every day. And I'd give him the update. And he'd ask, is Zelensky still alive? Can't believe he's still alive. He's so brave. And finally, we're driving one day. School's near downtown here. And Levi just goes, oh, there's, there's cars and people all around us. He says, how come everyone just goes on with their lives? Like, how can these people still go to work? How can these people still drive their cars, knowing that people are dying halfway around the world? And me being more bitter, bitter and cynical, that first voice was, you know, well, when you get older, you'll understand. If, if you stop your whole life for every tragedy, you'll never move forward. But I think he actually had the right-sized view in, the, in that moment. This innocent view that says, these things shall not happen. And when they do, everything should stop. I think the Holy Spirit convicts us of what we were created to be. I think he was speaking into my life in that moment. See, when that happens in your own heart, you have a new guiding compass. But when that happens in a community like a church, or the global church, the whole world gets show-and-tell with the gospel. A new community living as an alternative city in this city. Not only praying and lamenting when there's injustice and violence, but actively working for peace. So the Holy Spirit comes. The second There's um, one way to look at it. N.T. Wright talks about this in in one of his reflections. He says, The early Christians, like their Jewish contemporaries, saw heaven and earth as the overlapping and interlocking spheres of God's good creation, with the point being that heaven is the control room from which earth is run. To say that Jesus is now in heaven is to say three things. First, that he is present with his people everywhere, no longer confined to one space-time location within earth, but certainly not absent. So we, we discussed that. Second, he is now the managing director of this strange show called Earth, and though like many incoming chief executives, he has quite a lot to do to sort it out and to turn it around. And third, that he will one day bring heaven and earth together as one, becoming therefore personally present to us once more within God's new creation. Let's think about that for a second. Because of the ascension, The control room of heaven and earth has a new sign on the window that says, under new management. You know, my first legal job was at Sioux Plantation in Point Loma. In fact, it was at the first Sioux Plantation ever. It was the very flagship first one. And Michael Mack, the founder, who when they closed everything down, he used to write my paycheck by hand. And I'd sit with him as this 16-year-old And uh, I was the youngest crew trainer in soup plantation history at at that time, just so you know. And uh, there was this general manager named Bob, who I liked Bob, but Bob was scary when he got mad. Bob would come into the back and throw dishes. I think that's why we ended up having plastic soup bowls, you know, because of Bob. It was the Bob rule. Bob was a scary manager, and he didn't produce great results because he didn't inspire confidence or, you know, enthusiasm or anything. He just tried to hide from Bob. And I remember one day coming in and there was a sign that said, under new management. And Joe had become the manager. And things had turned around. I mean, from the, from the user experience to the employee experience to the stock prices, it all turned around. It took time. It takes time to change a culture. It takes time to change habits. It takes time to, break, to mend things that have been broken. But it all started with that sign that said, under new management. And I don't mean to be trite here, but I do think the ascension says that this world is under new management. And it will take a while to sort out. But the trajectory is toward new creation. And so the invitation is to live into the new management of the new king, Jesus. Again, already and not yet. The resurrection life has begun. We still live in the old age that's tired and broken as well as beautiful at the same time the overlap. But we live as citizens and ambassadors of that new creation. Which brings us to the third part and final. In our scripture, Jesus has ascended into heaven. Now, on one hand, this is ancient people using ancient words to describe something they experienced, okay? So if you wanted to disprove the Bible, as Yuri Gagarin, the first Soviet um, cosmonaut, went up to space and he said, I have been to space. I did not see God there, right? That's not what scripture is trying to say, that he just went up. Like, how far do you have to go before you get to heaven? It's not a geographical place like that. Okay, so put that one to rest. Um, It is a way of describing the overlapping and interlocking realities of heaven and earth that are closer than you can imagine. And so part of it is they say in verse 11, he will return just as he went. He will return to fully consummate the new creation. He will return... To heal everything. And if you think about that, the incarnation at Christmas, we celebrate that the divine became human and came into this realm. But at the ascension we celebrate that the human, Jesus is fully God and fully human, the human for the first time made its way into the heavenly realm. There is a human being in heaven named Jesus, fully human, fully divine. And the promise of verse 11, he will come back in the same way in which he came. It's as though God is threading humanity and the divine into heaven and will one day loop it back through the fabric of this creation. That heaven and earth will be married together. This is why we pray on Sundays, as we will momentarily, not get us out of this earth into heaven. We pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so... As we hold together all of this, here's what we see. We see a new welcome. The list of people that Rita read at the very end, the names of the people. If you ever want to just kind of do a little Google search on each of those names, you will recognize people that had nothing in common. In fact, people who were natural, mortal enemies. Someone who's against the Roman establishment, someone who's working for the Roman establishment. Russia and Ukraine, basically, if you want. Republican and Democrat, if you want. Every ethnicity and culture, if you want. And he calls them together. A new welcome altogether. I love that it says, and he had this, these people and those people, and the, and the women were there as well, which we read today, and we're like, yeah, they better have been. Back then, that was revolutionary that women were included in the center of the leadership circle. A new welcome altogether, a new witness altogether. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. To witness simply means, I mean, maybe you're following the Johnny Depp, the Amber Heard trial, I don't know. Hope you have better things to do with your time. But to witness simply means to tell the truth about what you've seen and heard and experienced. And so you have a new witness. What story does your life tell? What would it look like for your life to tell the story of under new management? Praying for peace and then owning your particular area of life, your particular spheres of influence as a peacemaker. Using your resources not only for yourself, of course, you need to take care of yourself, but beginning to generously pour them out on behalf of others. Living a life not merely marked by self preservation and advancement, but rather the renewal of all things. Friends, when this happens, your life is transformed and this world is renewed. And you know what else it makes you? We'll close with this. It makes you someone who can rejoice when people rejoice and weep when people weep. It makes you someone who can say, God moves toward me in my brokenness, and so I will move into this world in its brokenness. And as we do, we enact the new creation together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray now for this new creation. We do pray now, even as our hearts are heavy and our life, our lives and our world are burdened, rightfully so. Give us courage to lament. Give us tears to grieve. Give us patience to sit and wait. And in due time, give us hope of your resurrection, of your ascension, of your presence to us now. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.